This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. We also have the support of LensRentals.com, the largest online camera rental house in the U.S. They carry the most popular brands and models of cameras and lenses, but also anything you need for video, lighting, post-processing accessories, and more. Whether you need something for a one-time assignment or want to test it out before you buy, LensRentals.com is there to help. Explore their extensive inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at LensRentals.com forward slash newsletter. The rock and roll mythos, in all its variations, has been shaped not only by its music, but by its imagery. When I think of certain bands or performers, there are photographs that immediately come to mind. Whether it's the Beatles, the Sex Pistols, Jimi Hendrix, or Bob Dylan, there are photographs that exemplify those artists at the apex of their creativity and their fame. Cleveland-based photographer Janet McCoska has been creating just such images of performers including U2, David Bowie, Tina Turner, Devo, Kiss, The Black Keys, and countless more. Some of her best work has been created in her hometown, a city that is not only home to the Rock and Roll Museum, but has also served as an important focal point for many rock and rollers' careers. Bruce Springsteen is among them. And Janet has created an incredible archive of the boss's career, including his very first performance in Cleveland as an opening act for a British guitar band. In her book, Bruce Springsteen, Live in the Heartland, Janet shares photographs and stories that provide a unique perspective on the evolution of not only a legendary musician and entertainer, but also that of a photographer who has her own story to tell. This is Ibadi on X. And welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, thank you for joining us. I'm thrilled to join you. I really enjoyed the book. Thank I you. finished going through it this morning. One of the reasons I like the book is not just because of the, your photographs, which are amazing, but I felt that it was as much of a, a story about the relationship between uh, Bruce Springsteen in Cleveland. Yes. And I really loved getting that sort of history lesson between, you know, the growth, the development of him as a musician and as a performer and the importance that Cleveland played in that. So kudos on, on producing just a wonderful book. Thank you. I mean, it, because I'm from Cleveland and that, you know, I've, I've shot other places too, but it is very unique what Bruce had with Cleveland. And it, we, we are kind of a, a safe spot for him. So that when he was, they call it Asbury Park West, Cleveland, because we were one of the first cities to adopt him and love him and, and believe in him besides his hometown, besides New Jersey, the whole state of New Jersey. So we had that intimate connection very early on with him in his career. And that's, I think, what shows what you feel looking at the photos, but also if you were sitting in the audience, you would, you would just know that, um, that he was your guy, that he spoke to you personally, yeah. whether it was, you know, a thousand people in the audience or 80,000 people in the audience. Looking through the pictures and then reading the, the text really gave me a sense that, that his, his was a road band that as much as he's known for the albums he recorded, so much of of his work, his persona, what he was as an entertainer was so much tied to being on the road and performing in front of people that that really 
helped to shape him. And it's really interesting since you were there at the very beginning to see him develop and grow while you were growing and changing as a photographer yourself. Exactly. I think it's a really interesting parallel. Did you ever see, consider those parallels yourself? Well, this is the COVID baby. This is the 18 months of not being able to pick up a camera and shoot what I love to shoot. So with this project, I got to do this deep dive into my negatives. But until I did, I didn't actually know that that show, that first show that I shot of Bruce, which is February 1st, 1974, and he opened for a British band called Wishbone Ash. And I went to photograph Wishbone Ash. I didn't know. I knew very little about Bruce Springsteen. So my first show shooting rock and roll is that show. But my first person that I photographed as a rock and roll photographer, baby rock and roll photographer, was Bruce Springsteen. And that just blew my head off my shoulders. I mean, it was crazy and it made it more important to tell this story because, you know, he's my first. <laughs> and you, you talk about that. You, you, you sense something in him because you had gone there to photograph the, the openers. Yeah. I mean, not the oh, openers, but the, you the know, the, the, yeah. the headliner. Yeah. And he was opening for the show, but you you were so fascinated by what you saw that you ended up exposing more frames than you had anticipated. What what was it about him that fascinated you, even in those early moments when you were just discovering him? Well, you know, knowing now after all these years how he how his look developed and his stage persona developed, it really was at the very beginning of his power as a performer but he had it already. I mean, he had Clarence Clemens next to him and, and probably different members of the band that exist now. And he was more, um, there were people who believed he would be the next Bob Dylan because he had, had a, a kind of quieter sound and, and storytelling. And, but, the, you know, with that, maybe not, being as exuberant as he would become on stage, he still had that power and charisma and the dynamics of his personality and his, his stories. He was a storyteller from the very beginning. So, you know, even though that audience was there to see a, a British guitar band, they sat there and they listened to him and they were drawn into to, to his world sitting there with him. And by the end of 45 minutes, they were up on their feet saying, this is beyond what any of us expected it to be. And, and that was the same with me. I mean, I mean, I have to say I was, I was probably exuberant myself just being in that situation and, and being able to photograph rock and roll that I'm sure I was excited about that. And then before I knew it, it was like, ooh, whoops, look at all the, look at all the frames I shot on him. And I only have a few <laughs> left for my action. You, you've seen a, a lot of different performers, but describe what, you, what you're seeing when he is up on stage and, and, and you're photographing him. What is this thing that, you, that captivates you as a photographer visually when you're seeing him up there? Oh, wow. Um, when I go to photograph any any anyone in performance, I get really quiet inside, and I don't even hear the music. I, I there's just there's a way that I want to connect with that musician on stage, that artist on stage, and almost kind of channel what they're giving me and the audience, and create those sixtieth of a second moments of that performance. And while I'm aware of lighting and what they're doing at a particular moment, it's it's really reacting. And and I, you know, I can't I can't I can't say how I decide when to push the button on the camera. It's it's anticipation almost that they're about to give me something really unique, and and they do. And you have to. Somebody said if you. Oh, one of the one of my heroes, Baron Woolman, who shot in the '60s. He said, "If if you see in in your uh, camera an image that's like wow and great and 
fabulous. He goes, once you, if you see it, you've missed it. <laughs> it's almost really knowing that something's coming and being just a step ahead of it. I know it's kind of weird. Considering that you've photographed him over so many years and you've seen, you've seen him, you know, develop and change. Do you feel that that familiarity with him through your lens made you more adept in terms of being able to anticipate those moments? I would, I would say so. And, and I would also point out, cause I'm guessing you have listeners that are photographers of, of, you know, young and old, all ages. And I'll take you back to film photography, you know, 35 millimeter or whatever film photography, where there is no, preview of your photo there is a, a way to check it in the moment like you can with digital it's a lot of instinct it's a lot of knowing what your camera can do and how to push film to get it to do more and playing with the light but knowing checking out what's in front of you and then disregarding it and going to some kind of chemistry set in your head to figure out the photo but knowing the artist, knowing the music, because I couldn't even study videos on him. There was no YouTube. Knowing the music was was what helped me as a photographer. I mean, I I just I would get the records from the record company or buy them, and I would just sit with them for days before and just listen, 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 listen. And you know, once once I'd shot Bruce a few times, I could see that he was developing. Um, bits or things with like the big man certain songs where he'd, he'd do s similar actions in that same song and I'd wait for it but but truthfully I was in the moment with him all the time and and the surprises were surprises to me too and 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 even though someone would photograph Bruce I guess at his at, at his peak action moments where he's screaming into the microphone and doing that kind of action. You probably saw in the book that there are quieter moments too, where the lights cut off a bit and he's in shadow. And, and I found those moments really fascinating as a, as a photographer looking at Bruce, I wanted more moments like that to, to just, just get his all around persona and capture the many moods that happen during a concert, not just the ones that everybody expects to see and wants to go and photograph. My favorite photo in the book is the one where he's leaning back on Clarence Clemens as he's Clarence is playing the horn. Yeah. And he's like looking yeah. it up and his eyes are almost at the top of the head, looking up at Clarence. And I, when I turned the page, when I turned the page and I look at that shot, I just a smile came to my face because it's, it's one of those rare rock and roll shots where you see the relationship between the musicians that are up on stage. Cause a lot, you'll see the various musicians, maybe in a wide shot, each of them sort of playing their instruments. But I love that moment mm -hmm. because it, it really reflected the love, the respect and just the warmth that they, that they shared. You know, I, I've heard about it. I never got the chance to, to see them all together live, but in that picture, I, I saw it embodied in a single frame. And I know that it's, as you just said, you were shooting film in those days, so it wasn't an easy feat to get shots like that. <laughs> Talk to me about that particular moment. Well, it was it was obvious. I mean, that that band was really, really close. They were a family and, you know, carefully chosen by Bruce, but but a family. And he and Clarence were just the most interesting of brothers. I mean, they were. Here's is Bruce, who, who whose nickname is Scooter. So it's Scooter and the Big Man. Um, but there's little Bruce, and and the Big Man is just so s solid and and um, and earthy, and he's the foundation. Even though you think Bruce is the foundation of that band, it's Clarence Clemens. He's he holds it all together, and he gives. Bruce, that possibility of flying around the stage and coming back to land, you know, with Clarence, where it's it's safe and it's and it's fun and it's and it's it's his family. I mean, that that whole band is his family, and their interactions on stage are 
are that kind of carry that kind of love um, and respect. And I think that's another reason why he's been so immensely popular and the band was so immensely popular, you know, so that shot, that shot would happen probably in several ways during a show, maybe not that exact movement. It was my intention to want to capture them like that, hope to capture them like that and show, show that in a single frame, have, have that kind of, uh, relationship depicted in one frame it's beautiful Sean you grew up in in a time that it was still sort of the heyday of radio and especially the DJ and uh you mentioned in in the book your transistor radio and I remember the one I had that was gifted to be by my grandmother it was it was a very fond memory about extending that little metal antenna trying to get that frequency for my favorite channel but tell me about what was the station you would tune to in those early years when getting turned on to rock and roll? And who were some of the, you know, the radio personalities and DJs that really shaped what you came to understand as rock and roll? In Cleveland in the 60s, when I, when I would have been, you know, I was 10 years old when the Beatles came to America in 64. And they actually, I would say, uh, they were the inspiration for me wanting to be amongst music and, and musicians and wanting to to be part of that and tell that story. So my station then was KYW in Cleveland, and it became WKYC. And my two favorite disc jockeys were Jerry G. He was the afternoon guy. And uh, later, a couple of years later, Big Jack Armstrong. And I ended up running a fan club for Big Jack, and he let me come down to the station and hang out in the DJ lounge where I got to, to talk to Jerry G, and Jerry G, would, who had gone on tour with the Beatles a couple times, would get all this stuff sent from the office in London, and so he'd give me Beatles Christmas records that only he got, or, you know, it was just oh, treats. Wow. There were treats, and they treated me so well, like a little sister, because they didn't have to treat a 12-year-old. I was about 12 at that time that well, but I'd, I'd come down and answer fan mail for them. Jack would give me records, big boxes of 45s. It was great. And I would bring my camera down there and I'd photograph what was happening with the DJs or when they had personalities come in who were going to do a concert that night, like Sonny and Cher, I'd take photos of them. And my first printed photo, my first published photo was Sonny and Cher at WKYC Radio in 1966. And I sold it to Teen Screen Magazine and got $2. So that was my kind of (laughs) intro to that world. And also about the same rate of of payment that you might get today. But it was... (laughs) I just, I just relish and treasure the fact that I had that opportunity to to hang out at a radio station and be again. My it's my intro to being amongst the music and doing doing a job that I love. And again, these these guys didn't have to do that. They didn't have to let the kid in, but they did. It was great training ground. It was wonderful. Your, your parents must have been incredibly supportive. You know, letting. Letting their, you know, preteen run around in a, a records, you know, you know, at a at a radio station. It was with all it, those long hairs. Yeah, um, <laughs> it was it was a much more innocent day, and thing dangerous things, I guess, didn't happen like they do now. My dad was a lawyer at a legal firm across the street from the radio station, so sometimes I'd go hang out and then, you know, take the rapid transit with him on on the way home. So it was pretty cool. And Jerry G would, you know, talk to my mom and tell her it was okay. And we're all looking after her. So there I was. How did you figure out that you could actually earn a living from it? Because you wanted to do it. You wanted to be in that world. But it's not like today where you you can go on the internet and you can follow a bunch of people who who have done this. There was no sort of game plan for making that happen. How did you do it? Well, it was... It was based on 
what I saw in Life magazine. My mom got Life magazine, and I saw photojournalists making a living, telling stories with their photos, and and not just you know. Uh, I remember I remember one one story about uh, James Dean goes home to his hometown in Indiana, and how fun that was because. You know, he's going to the local barber shop. He's just walking down the street and visiting the hardware store. And I'm thinking, that's it. Because you can really learn about somebody, not just the person who's in the movie or, or how they are on stage as a band or an artist. I want to know who they are when they grew up or who they are when they're off stage. And Life Magazine did it, so why shouldn't I be able to do it? Also, the 16 Magazine and Teen Beat Magazine type publications for kids and teenagers were doing the same thing. So there was, there was a method to the madness in that I could see that it happened and people made a career out of it. And my intention was to go to journalism school, you know, to take two years at a community college in Cleveland, get all the courses you, you needed to get, and then go to, I don't know, I think the... Boston, Boston had a journalism school in Chicago. There was a journalism school there, but I never made it because I was doing what I wanted to do right off the bat. So in terms of learning the business side, mm. that's the harder part. So how, tell me about figuring that out. Well, when you are doing freelance photography, I think that you better teach yourself how to take care of yourself, you know, as a, as a business person, Otherwise, you'll give it up in a year because you, you know, go be an accountant or go be, I don't know what you're going to be. But I was, I was too determined to, to be in this business. So I learned how to make it work for me. I learned how to go to promoters and, and ask for their help getting me into shows and giving them pictures in return. But then record labels started hiring me to, you know, uh, if they brought Blondie or Lou Reed or somebody in for the day to, to take them around to radio stations. They needed a photographer with them. And there I was at, at 19, you know, getting jobs mm. with record labels, not getting paid a lot, but getting an opportunity to, to have behind the scenes photos as well as everything they needed and then print little eight by tens for them to give, you know, to the record distributor that we visited and the disc jockeys we visited and that's the start of a business uh, apart from you know trying to sell pictures to magazines as well and the what band. was your first album cover because <laughs> i don't you know it wasn't album covers per se i i think a lot of those shots went to new york and la photographers truthfully but bands were always wanting some of my photos to use for pr shots or you know it'd be in the booklet inside the album or in the back of i mean you know i'm on uh, yeah. i'm on the stage album by bowie but it's the back cover and you know and the same thing the kinks used a lot of my photos on their repackaging it's it's a lot of that i, I get a lot of repackaging and books and you know i'm on clash albums and zeppelin albums and things like that it's just but early on, I can imagine it must have been quite the kick to see your work in the in the material for an album, considering how precious they had been to you at one point. Yes, and how much I'd studied them. I think anybody who grew up with records and albums knew how much fun it was, not just to put the record on the, on the turntable, but you'd sit there and you'd look at the album cover and you'd you'd read all the credits, and if there were liner notes or lyrics, you sat there, and it was like, you know, it was your uh, homework, to sit, a nice homework, a fun homework, to sit there and, and absorb everything about the music, um, the artwork, the lyrics, any little factoids they would throw to you on those albums were, were just the best. You know, even though Los Angeles and, and New York are long associated with you know, the sort of the business of music, Cleveland is often referred to or considered as the heartbeat of rock and roll. The city that embodies the heartbeat of rock and roll. And it has a really unique place in history with respect to that. What is it about that city and that part of the country 
that allowed it to become that? I think I think the old older Cleveland of the '60s and '70s was really blue collar, uh, middle class workers who just you know after their their work week they just wanted to have a beer and listen to rock and roll and and the labels knew that if they could get a record played in Cleveland and and have it start to take off from Cleveland, it would it would hit everywhere else in the country. And, the, and they started doing that from the 50s onward. Um, we were kind of this breakout market. Once we got to the 70s, and it was album-oriented radio, we had a station, WMMS, that, that really made conscious efforts to introduce new music to listeners in Cleveland. We, we had the advantage of hearing David Bowie before David Bowie was, was heard through America. And in fact, Bowie played his first American concert in Cleveland. And it just, it worked that way. Again, in the seventies, which is when I was really starting to shoot, the promoters even had themselves organized that way. They'd listen to what WMMS was playing and they'd get on that artist quickly, you know, like, Oh, this, this is, this is coming up in, in the charts and it's really getting good reaction. So we had clubs. We had the uh, the Cleveland Agora, which probably held, I don't know, a thousand if you really pushed everybody in there. But they'd jump on a band, play them first, and then the other promoter, which is Belkin Productions, who had three thousand seat halls and ten thousand seat halls to play with and twenty thousand seat halls to play with, would see the success of of an artist at the Agora and book them three months later in the little, in the little, uh, 3000 seat venue. And you could, you could watch a band succeed just by a year of Cleveland, um, activity going from the club to the, to the 3000 seat hall and then upwards. Many times it was a, a rapid growth for those artists and, and everybody in America watched that trend and, and jumped on it then. If I ever added up all the money I spent on photo equipment that I wanted, but really didn't need, I think I'd shock myself. I'm pretty sure that I could have paid for at least several lengthy vacations abroad. Though I often sold those things to offset the purchase of other equipment, I always felt some regret. I have never felt that way about a photo book. For me, they are investments in my education and my career. Whether it's a new acquisition or a book that I purchased way back in college, I return to them because I always derive something invaluable from them. That's why I'm such a fan of charcoal books and why I'm so glad to have them as a sponsor. Whether you already have a library or are just beginning one, the Charcoal Book Club is the best way to enhance and expand your collection with some of the best first edition books from contemporary photographers. Take a look at their website and examine the great titles they offer, and you'll get a sense of what you have to look forward to. And if and even if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another one of their titles of similar value. You have nothing to lose. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today, and remember to use the code THECANDRAFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And if you want to use certain equipment, but don't want to spend all that money on something you aren't sure of, or only need for a one-time event, you have a friend in LensRentals.com. It's not only your best resource for cameras and lenses, they offer an extensive inventory of camera bags, tripods, strobes, audio equipment, and backgrounds. They provide you a convenient and affordable way to rent equipment to determine whether or not you need it as a permanent addition to your toolkit. Check out their inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at lensrentals.com forward slash newsletter. And thanks to all of you who support the Candor Frame financially. Of the thousands of people that listen to the show, only a few hundred support the show financially. If you want to change that for yourself, please contribute to the Candor Frame today. 
You can do that by contributing $5, $10, or $20 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Just five bucks a month from you makes a big difference. Thank you so much for your kindness and support. I have a great appreciation for the work because I know that then as now, these venues are not designed for photographers. The lighting <laughs> has always been pretty much trash. <laughs> it's just enough for the <laughs> musicians to be able to play. But is there, with respect to the photographer being able to make a decent picture, not so much. Um, not so, so I know you were working, you know, with some black and white and, and some color. But talk to me about the challenges of shooting, which at the time were still moderate to, you know, moderate ISO film speeds, especially when you're shooting with color. And how did you sort of make that make that work? Well, I didn't shoot color a lot. Magazines were still using primarily black and white. As I've discussed with other photographers who did what I did, like, you know, Bob Alford in, in Detroit, we, he did a talk at the Rock Hall once, and I was, and I was, I shot for the Rock Hall for about eight years, and we're sitting around, and and I said, "So Bob, how did you decide who to shoot in color?" And he goes, "Well, I'd always have some color, because if if they were really hot and on the and and getting hotter, I'd throw a few, you know, a roll of color in there." He goes, "But it was expensive, and it was. I mean, we would." we would figure out before we went to a concert how many roles to take and black and white you could process yourself you could push the film to get a higher speed to to get those pictures that were hard to get with the bad lights but it wasn't and it wasn't until there there were a couple magazines circus magazine is a rock magazine that decided to use a lot of color and the teen magazines did color pinups so you know, if if you had a prospect like that, then you would put a roll of color film in. But mostly, at the beginning, we were just shooting black and white. That's that's why when you see a few odd photos of Bruce in color, I'm trying <laughs> to get a good color shot, <laughs> but you can't, you can't shoot flash. You can't shoot flash on that. And man, lots of red lights are just nasty looking lights. Not really the best for color, and use an ectochrome. So you didn't have a lot of possibilities there. Speaking of speaking of, of, of photographing in color with the lower ISO films, you know I think that the fact that you were shooting at a moderate shutter speed, mm-hmm. not like you can today, and you know, push the ISO to twelve thousand eight hundred and shoot it, you know, five hundredth of a second. I think that the fact that the images have some blur and some motion really adds to the feel in the images uh, that I saw in the book. Um, I think that some of the images today, though you can get a tech-sharp image of the performer, sometimes it still feels a little empty. You may capture that peak moment that you referred to earlier that some photographers are always going for, but there's something to be said for an image that sort of captures the essence of a performance. Talk to me about now, because now you're able to get stuff tech-sharp, but you know from yeah. your history in terms of other images that a text sharp picture isn't necessarily the best photograph. So talk to me now that you have the option, the creative choices involved in making your photographs. Well, I'm, I'm, I wanted to point out one shot, which, of course, you've seen, but listeners haven't, haven't seen. It's, it's me trying to shoot some color at that ni- 1976 performance of Bruce. And the only reason it really works is because somebody in the audience, and this is really like impossible to do, shot a little flash camera because there's a flash that happens and, and there is that, that blurry thing going on, except that it, it makes it more exciting because it's like, yep, Janet's trying to do this and she's, and she's cursing the lights again. And then somebody adds a little pop of flash and it's, whoa. Yeah, that's it. That's what I wanted. I just couldn't do it by myself. <laughs> um, now with with digital, man, it was it's like it's heaven with digital. I don't want to, and I hate to say that because I love everything 
about film, but now I can look at what they're throwing at me on stage and the lights, which are also improved. They're, you know, run by computers and zipping around and, and they become another character on stage. I can, I can get like layers, <laughs> layers of light coming in and, and the artist is in the foreground, but, but I'm getting like all kinds of different dimensions of, of light coming through the back and the middle and the front. And, and it becomes um, just a real game, a challenge in a game to see what I can pull out of a photo now because I've got all these fun elements to play with. It's great. <laughs> Many of your uh, contemporaries, even though they may have been shooting at the time, like you for freelance, for freelancers, uh, for magazines and publications, are now um, benefiting from the value of their archive. Mm -hmm. And that's helping a lot of guys and, and gals in terms of being able to sustain themselves. Talk, talk about being able to leverage your archive in that way. It's, I'll tell you, it's, it's been a struggle for a lot of photographers. And I think it's, we're finally coming into our own now. And I don't know why it didn't happen before. I don't know if our photography was not valued, but I remember talking to Henry Diltz, who, again, is one of those first rock and roll photographers. He he existed in L.A., still does, shooting, you know, albums for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And, and, and he was a fellow musician, and so that's how he ended up hanging with some of these people and, and doing that. But about 20 years ago... I called him on behalf of a gallery here and said, Henry, you want to do a show here? He said, yeah, I, I, I would. He goes, because I've got kids in college and I'm, and I'm still trying to make ends meet. He goes, but I can't afford to, to put on a show right now. I mean, because it's expensive. It's not just the photos and it's framing. It's how do I get them from place to place to place? But now he... He's with Morrison Hotel Gallery. He's a he's part owner in this national company that promotes and sells photographers, rock and roll photographers' photos. And he's just, you know, now he's, museums will call him up. Now museums can call him up and say, don't worry about it, Henry. We'll put it on for you. You know, you don't have to worry about the prints or the frames or how to ship it. We'll take care of that. And I think that's the place where hopefully we're we're getting to right now because we're losing a lot of our genius master photographers who, who shot in the sixties, Baron Woolman just passed away and Jim Marshall is gone. And, you know, really, I think especially Baron knew how to archive his, his material. And I believe he just gave his archive to the rock and roll hall of fame. So oh, I, yeah, it, wow. it's still, it's still a conundrum here as to how a photographer takes care of their work after they're going to be gone. If you don't have a family that, that can take that on. So we're still, we're still trying to figure it out. But I think, um, I think for example, with this Bruce Springsteen book, I, I, I hit a, a vein here, a vein of gold. I don't know that I'm going to, you know, really hit a vein of gold, but I hit, hit, hit a place where, I can I can see the photos take on a new life and tell the stories I always wanted them to tell beyond one or two photos from a concert. It's it's kind of reached a level that I'm very happy with and I hope it continues. Yeah. Cuz I felt I felt it was a story but it was also a journey cuz it really gave me an appre yes. appreciation for him um that I hadn't had before because even though cuz I got turned on to him with the uh Born in the USA album and mm -hmm. leading up to this conversation, I went back into his, into the archive, starting from his first album, listening. And then having read the mm -hmm. book, I was able to, you know, relate to the albums during the different periods that were illustrated in the, in the book. And it was really fascinating to get as a, a fuller experience of the music, the man, and your photographs. So, and it's rare that I think that, um, that a book can and does provide that. So it's one of the reasons I really loved going through it. Thank you. And that's what I hope the fans get. I mean, it's a book for fans. It, it's great if photography fans pick it up too and enjoy it 
for that. But I'll tell you, since this book has come out and it's only been out less than a month, just the talks that I've done where Bruce Springsteen fans have, have shown up, it's, it's seeing it in their faces, how much they enjoy this journey too. They're getting to go back in time and revisit these, these concert tours that they've gone to. And they've gone to a lot of shows. You know, one, one person comes up and says, well, yeah, I've been to 80 shows, but, but he's been to, you know, a couple hundred shows and we've seen Bruce on Broadway six times and you're going, Oh, <laughs> you know, like they're, they're, <laughs> serious fans and I'm glad they they like this book and accept it and 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 find pleasure in this book because I I started out as a fan who wanted to find a place in music and that's what still lives in me I mean you know I have the heart of a fan when I go to a show I'm I'm just as happy as can be it's 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 where I find my greatest joy. Are you still, you know, when you first saw Bruce, it was like your a discovery of him. Have you had right. many such discoveries over the length of your career where you, you went to some con- concert and discovered a performer or a band that you just fell in love with? Probably lots of times. I mean, I was a sponge <laughs> back in the day when, I'd go to a record company maybe every couple of months and they would give me a big box of records and it was like, whoa, it's Christmas and Halloween and everything else right here. And then you, you get to <laughs> listen to all kinds of music, even music you wouldn't normally listen to. And I think that's still the way it is. I don't think I find those magical artists or bands as much, but I'm probably not looking as hard as I did when I was younger. And you know, I found bands like Roxy Music, love Roxy Music, Bowie, and other bands that people don't know. There was a band called the Sensational Alex Harvey Band from Scotland. And Alex ended up giving me my first jobs shooting professionally. And again, I was only 19. And when I was ready to go over to England, he said, you stay with my family. And he was, he was the headliner at the Reading Festival in 1978. So I'm shooting the Reading Festival. I have this new family <laughs> that adopts me. And and every summer I go back over there and do- doors just swing open because, you know, the record label knows that I know Alex. It's, it's really, this has been, I've been doing this for 47 years now. It just, there's just magical moments all the way through that the, there's, there's really down times as well, but there's just been so many magical moments and so many great artists and great shows and, you know, and, and I've made a living, not a huge, wonderful, sparkly living, but a nice living. So what else could you ask Seems for? Seems like the industry sometimes makes it far too difficult, you know, considering how reliant they are on the imagery that photographers like you create. And one of the things that I know is an issue is, is in terms of these these legal documents your people are expected to sign today in terms of copyright and approval and usages and you know all this craziness um how do you contend with it well if i know about them ahead of time well, let's put it this way okay for for like 8 years or so a shot for the rock hall and i let them the weight of those obligations, whatever somebody's going to throw at somebody on a piece of paper, a contract, it's like, here, guys, you handle it because I'm just shooting for you. So why should my name be on this piece of paper with all those obligations? I shot for, we had a, a, a the Hard Rock Roxino was a, for five years, I was their photographer. I shot about 100 shows a year for them. And again, if we came up against that, for example, Cheap Trick now have a contract, and, and there's others, but Cheap Trick have a contract that says, we own everything. You're shooting, you come to us, and, and we'll let you have one photo for social media, but oh, by the way, we own the copyright for everything, and we can use anything you shoot for free. If, if I was shooting that, not knowing that 
the hard rock was still going to pay me to be there, I would say, you know what you can do with this contract because that's just obscene. It's, it's just obscene. But the hard rock would say, you know, you just sign Janet McCoska shooting on behalf of hard rock, Roxino. He said, if it comes down to lawyers, who, who do you think is going to win? The hard rock corporation probably has as many lawyers, if not more than cheap trick, but we'll play that game because we're paying them to be here. But Janet, you don't have to worry about it. Just shoot the photos mm-hmm. and that's okay. But it's ridiculous. And it, and it just shows why I think this art form, this, I just don't think rock and roll photography is going to survive much past this. I know that's depressing, but it's, it's contracts, it's three song limits and it's everybody in the place having cell phones, shooting pictures that nobody controls, but yet they want to control professional photographers who, who make a band look the best they can look. I know you didn't ask that question. <laughs> I, I I had to ask it, but um, well, and I, but, and I you had know, to I think that, that you know I think that the uh, that despite how things are, are changing, I'm so glad that work like yours exists because it 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 just shows the the love affair we have with music, and it illustrates it in a beautiful way. And hopefully, at some point, people you know, who are making those decisions will realize why aren't we getting as good photographs as they used to make? It's like, it's because of the decisions you're making, idiot. <laughs> you know, cause those, you know, some of those shots that you have, especially that shot that you have of that you shot of a Bruce from behind with the audience that was on the cover of your first yes. book. That is a phenomenal photograph and that never would have happened if you're all the way in the in the back of the stadium with a 300 400 millimeter lens that moment that relationship between him and the audience would have been completely lost so i'm I'm being quiet because you're 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 saying all the wise things right now (laughs) (laughs) fortunately i'm not i'm not a in the publishing industry to have any say no but you said you you're saying all the things that need to be said to support and save these images that you saying there it's necessary. It's, it's part of, here's how, here's how I'll say it. The music is the primary focus. The, the music and the artists are the primary focus, but we're the visuals to that soundtrack. And we can take people back to those moments too, the ones that they experienced when they were 17 and seeing Bruce Springsteen or whoever. And I'm, I'm, I'm just very proud to have done that. Well, thank you for sharing it with us. I really appreciate it. My last question, which I ask each guest, guest is I ask them to recommend a photographer to uh, suggest to our listeners. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired, or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Um, I'm, I'm not going to hit on, on who I really want because there are these street photographers that they're turning up now where somebody really wasn't, they, they weren't popular or they were, I mean, it, they, they just didn't even shoot to be popular. It's, it's, and there's so much photography that is being discovered that, it, that are just interesting street photographers but in terms of rock and roll, you know, I, I keep saying Baron Woolman because truthfully, that's that's who I, I looked at when I was younger. I looked at Henry Diltz and Baron Woolman and Jim Marshall, and they created space and need for all of us. I mean, you know, we all came after. And, and Baron has amazing work. And he, he had amazing joy for what he did in the moment. There's just pictures of him on stage. Well, where he's got cameras hanging off of him and, you know, he did Woodstock and Monterey and all that. And, he, but he's got a big gigantic smile on his face because he's having fun too. And that's, I guess that's the, the blessing in the kind of photography we, we have done in the music business is that again, you can't, it doesn't get better than this. <laughs> it, it, it can be a pain in the butt a lot, but 
to be able to be in the presence of these musicians and 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 have uh, many times really great access to them is just the most fun you can have. So I would dig back. I would dig back and look at the folks who shot in the '60s to begin with. Oh, and Alfred Wertheimer. I don't know if I said that right. Who photographed Elvis at the beginning? Oh, he's just. He'll just blow your head off your shoulders. I got to got to meet him once. <laughs> I was just I was just like a, a slobbery drooly fan. I mean, it, it it's just amazing what he was able to do because nobody knew Elvis at the time, and he was just hanging with this guy who, like, within a couple months, really exploded. There you go. I mean, there's well, there's a lot of great photographers. Yes. Thank you so much. Really, really enjoyed talking with you. And, and again, I love the book. Thank you. Um, and, and I appreciate that you love the book and that you're giving me this time to talk about it with you. Thanks to Janet for joining us. Find out more about Janet and her work by visiting JanetMcCoskaPhotography.com. Your thoughts and feelings about this show matter. If you haven't already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to podcasts. It helps us to stand out among the thousands of podcasts that are out there. Your voice, it makes a big difference. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Mark Gregory and Mary Preston Roberts for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. There are no additional purchases required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.